Thank the Lord for Calvary. Amen. I'm glad he was willing to go for you and for me. If you have your Bibles, turn with me if you would to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Thank you, Kleins and Kelsos, for that beautiful song. Appreciate it. I have a dilemma, and that is I am planning to preach from the whole chapter of 1 Samuel chapter 20, and I like to read what I'm preaching, and unfortunately it's 42 verses, and the clock watchers among you start my time as soon as I get up here and start talking, so I'm already on the clock, so if I read 42 minutes, you're all just going to use that against me, and so, Dean... Um, Jimmy. <laughs> so anyhow, um, we are, I, I feel, I feel a, a bit of that, um, anyhow, just not just because of you clock watchers, but, but also be, I don't want to weary you with, with reading a, an incredibly long passage of scripture, but one I think is important and I hope that you'll spend a little time, uh, perhaps this afternoon uh, after your nap, I'm sure you won't do it before, but after your nap, um, and read through this passage, I think that it's one that is powerful and, and needful. I have been struck, as I've been preaching this series, many of Jonathan's um, events uh, in Scripture are with David, and so we look at them either through the eyes of David or look at it, that event through both of their eyes together. But looking through just Jonathan's eyes has given me a whole new perspective, and I'm trusting the Lord will help us. I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm planning to read only the first nine verses to just kind of give us the context, and I'll be preaching things that perhaps you... Uh, will remember this is not an uncommon story, and um, I trust that we'll be preaching the word of God. And David fled from Nioth to Ramah and came, said before Jonathan, "What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before my father, thy father, that seeketh my life?" And he said unto him, "God forbid, thou shalt not die. Behold, my father will do nothing, either great or small, but." He will show it me, and why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. And David swear moreover and said, Thy father certainly knoweth that I have found grace in thine eyes. And he saith, Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, there is but a step between me and death. Then said Jonathan unto David, Whatsoever thy soul desireth, I will even do it for thee. And David said unto Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king at meat, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field unto the third day at even. If thy father at all miss me, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me that he might run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family." If he say thus, it is well, thy servant shall have peace. But if he be very wroth, then be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore thou shalt deal kindly with thy servant, for thou hast brought thy servant into the covenant of the Lord with thee. Notwithstanding, if there be in me iniquity, slay me thyself, for 
Why shouldest thou bring me to thy father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from thee. For if I knew certainly that evil were determined by my father to come upon thee, then would not I tell thee. Father, so oftentimes as we go to the word, we marvel at the heroes, their strength and their courage amidst their difficult times. And you have placed them here to be an example to us. And we ask that you'd help us this morning as we endeavor to rightly divide the word of truth. That you'd help us, Lord. Oh, Father, help us to be what you'd have us to be. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Jonathan and David's relationship has been put to the test in the past. Saul has thrown javelins at David, multiple times attempted to kill him. But now the, the most serious attempt on David's life has taken place and to the point that his wife has had to hide a, a, a figure of some sort in the, in the bed sheets and lie. And, now and then Saul sent soldiers and it's been, it's been a real mess. Jonathan is torn between two great loves. He loves David as his own brother. In fact, the Bible says that, that, they, that they loved each other more than the love of a woman. I mean, they have, they have such a, a relationship that, that they are saying that they're closer than husband and wife. And I know that the homosexual crowd has gone off on that, and they said that, that they had some kind of uh, wrong relationship. There's just some things that a man can tell another man easier than he can tell his wife. And there's some things that a woman can tell a woman that's easier than telling her husband. I'm not talking about keeping secrets, but there's just some things that are a little easier to have a conversation with someone with, of the same gender. And they, un they understand a little better. And Jonathan and David have this kind of relationship. They can talk about anything they need to talk about. They can share their, their inner hearts. And, and they understand. There's, there's no need to, to soften it or sugarcoat it. They're not insecure in their relationship with each other. There is between them a, 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 just an openness and a tremendous love. They, they, this is unusual, even especially in this day, but, but I mean, they can fall on each other. They can hug each other and weep as grown men. Thank the Lord for those kind of relationships. Jonathan loves David as he loves his own life. In fact, may, in fact, I would say more than his own life. He just absolutely loves him. But Jonathan has another love. And it's a strong love. It's a powerful love. And it's a love that I think that, that oftentimes as we read the scriptures, we gloss over it and don't recognize it. We don't take it into consideration. But Jonathan loved his father. 
Jonathan was so close to his father. They had such a relationship. They're not estranged. They're so close that Jonathan's convinced that there is nothing that King Saul will do without first telling his son he's going to do it. That's a close relationship. I don't tell my son everything that I plan to do. We're close. And Jonathan, of course, is an adult. Maybe as Dennis and Brandon, they get into adulthood. Maybe, maybe that we'll have that kind of relationship. But Jonathan is absolutely convinced that his father's not going to kill David without first telling Jonathan. And David is saying, wait a minute, he already knows we're such good friends. He's not going to tell you. But Jonathan absolutely loves his father. If you remember, he would not criticize his father even as his father is sentencing him to death. He refused to do that. He was not going to run his father down in order to save his life. Talk about honoring your parents when that honor isn't deserved. Jonathan's close to his father. Jonathan remembers the good days when, when Saul was right with God and he was in his right mind and was not, didn't have that uh, spirit of the Lord that was troubling him. I believe Saul was a good father. I believe Saul taught Jonathan the art of war. I don't think he just left it to the servants. I believe the two of them spent a lot of time together battling with their perhaps wooden swords or, or shooting arrows or, or the different things that, that they like to do. I'm sure they went on hunts and, and, and uh, I'm sure they had all sorts of conversations and it became, they became as good friends. Jonathan loves his father Saul. And I think we fail to realize that. I, I think we forget how powerful that relationship was. And when Saul says, gives a command, if it, even if it's not something he agrees with, and so long as it isn't doing a, uh, wickedness before the Lord, slaying an innocent person, David being innocent, so long as it's not against the Lord, Jonathan does it regardless of his agreement with it. Such is his love for his father. And here Jonathan is. He's in an incredibly difficult place. He has David before him saying, What have I done? What's my sin? If I've done wrong, why don't you just go ahead and kill me and take me to your father? That would reconcile this, this breach that's between you and him now. Why don't you go ahead and slay me? If you know of anything that I've ever done against your father, go ahead and slay me and rebuild your relationship with your father. Make it back to the way it was before. Jonathan says, I don't know anything you've done wrong. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not, I'm not going to spill innocent blood. And their relationship is put to an incredible test. And Jonathan has to do something that is, that is so important and something that we need to do in this day. And Jonathan has to take a stand. 
For a long time, he has been between two warring opinions. Two different factions. There's been the side of David, and, and, he's, and his, David is his friend, and he loves him. And then there's Saul, his father, who has, who has thrown his javelin. And, and, and all this while, Jonathan is trying to keep peace between the two of them. He went to his father and said, you, this isn't right. And he brought Jonathan in, uh, or brought David into the house of his father again, as we preached about last week. Jonathan has done everything he can to reconcile two warring sides. No, David didn't raise his hand against Saul. But David is, by his very choice, his desire to live, is at odds with Saul's desire to get rid of the threat to the throne. And while Jonathan has been willing and, and, and up to this point able to try to stand in the middle of, and stand in the gap between these two different opinions, it's come time where Jonathan must decide where he stands. Where he stands. And there comes a time in each one of our lives, in fact, there are multiple times in our lives where we're going to have to take a stand for something. Certainly, it's wonderful if we can, if we can take two sides and we can mediate between them, if we can be a peacemaker between them. I believe God's called us to that role. I do believe that God's people ought to be mediators. I believe that we ought to be those that, that are trying to bring people together and not separate them. I do believe that, that God's people are, are a people who, who bring love to where the, into situations and into people where, where love has been lost. But there comes a point when the warring and the, the feuding and, and the separation has come and we have to take a stand and say, this is where I stand. I've tried to be political. I've tried to be uh, 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 careful in the way that I say things. I've tried to use the right speech. I've tried to do everything in such a way as to not offend either side. But it's come to a place where I have to take a stand. Taking a stand is hard to do. And Jonathan took a difficult stand. He sided with David because of his innocent blood. And because God said, this is where the throne is going to next. And by God's word and by J David's innocence, Jonathan takes a final stand and says, I'm with David. And yet, he doesn't go with David. He stays with Saul. I'm with David. I'm not going to harm him. I'm not going to do wrong. I'm not going to tell dad where he is. But I'm also, I have responsibility to be in the, with my father. And, Dave, and poor Jonathan is ripped apart by love and duty. 
When we take a stand, there's going to be a personal cost. There's going to be a personal cost. It's going to cost us something to take a stand. There are going to be those that are not going to like what we have to say. And there's going to be, there's going to be some things that, that we may miss out on. There's going to be some opportunities we, that may not come our way because we've taken the stand that we have. And when Jonathan makes this decision, he is, he is right there and he recognizes that making this decision is costing him the throne. It's going to cost him the throne. He, if he slays David now, the throne is his. If he, slay, if he takes David in and, and gives him to his father and his father slays him, then he, the throne is his. Jonathan didn't deserve to lose the throne. It wasn't Jonathan's sin that caused God to, to take the throne from, from the house of Saul and, and give it to David. It wasn't Jonathan's fault. It's a dangerous thing to say, it's my life and I'll do what I want and I'll sin the way that I want because it's just my life. It affects others. And poor Jonathan, in his goodness and in his holiness, and, I, and, I, and you don't ever see him slipping. He's still doing right even though it's costing him the throne. And ultimately, it's going to cost him his life. He doesn't know that yet. I don't know why God didn't allow Jonathan to live and be second in command. I wonder if it could have saved a, a bloody civil war that they would have later. Because one of King Saul's sons would, would make himself king and there'd be a civil war between Judah and Israel. I don't know why God didn't allow Jonathan to survive. But I know this. When we take a stand, it might cost us something. John the Baptist said, Oh, Herod, you're committing sin. You've got your brother's wife. And it cost him his head. Stephen sat, preached and he says, You've crucified the Messiah. And they stoned him. And we've come to the place in, in our American religion, in our American Christianity, we want to take a stand that doesn't cost us anything. And we will, we will get our friends on Facebook that all agree with us and we'll post our little memes and our, and our little echo chambers and everybody agrees with us and hits likes and shares and we feel good. We've done something for our stand. And it doesn't cost us anything. And that's the kind of Christianity we want. We want a health and wealth gospel. No, that's not us, preacher. That's not us. We want a, okay, we want a middle class and fairly good health gospel. A little overweight, maybe. We at least want a comfortable gospel. Do you know why Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire? Do you know how it spread? 
I mean, they're hated. People think that, that these people are, are killing babies and eating them. That's the lie that's being spread about Christianity. They're, they're doing communion, and they think they're killing children and eating them and drinking their blood. That's the lie going on in the Roman Empire. That's why Nero could burn Rome and blame the Christians, because they already kind of feared them. They thought the Christians were coming for their little children. I know that's kind of gruesome. How does, a, how does a religion that has that kind of reputation become the official religion of that country? Do you know what happened? In those days, there were a lot of plagues that would come into the cities. The sanitation was poor. Health standards weren't up to... People didn't wash their hands like they should. They didn't understand about germs. And so a lot of times these cities, would, plagues would come through. A lot of people living in a small, confined place. And do you know what the wealthy did? The people who had means, when the plagues would show up in their town, they all traveled to the country to get away from people. They had enough sense to know if you were sick, you could somehow give it to me. I don't know how it happened, but I just know being around sick people makes people sick. And so they all fled. But you know what Christians did? They stayed. Because the sick people would be left in the city all by themselves with no one to feed them and no one to care for them. And the Christians would come in and they would set up little infirmaries and they would dab their heads with cool cloths and they would try to feed them some soup and try to give them some strength and some energy. And do you know what would happen is some of those Christians, a lot of those Christians got sick along with them and, and they were dying. And, and, the, uh, and so pretty soon the, the plague would pass and, and some of those that had been sick and laying there some of them, as they were laying dying, they heard about Jesus and, and they accepted Christ. Some who died accepted Christ at the last moment. But, but now they're better and they're starting. And suddenly, these people are remembering the sacrifice that Christians had for them. The people who followed Zeus and Athena and all those other false gods, they didn't stay behind and help them. They didn't risk their lives for them. And so they became followers of Christ because they believed the sacrifice of Christ was possible because of the sacrifice of his children. But do you know what? We've gotten to the place that we don't want to sacrifice anything. We want to be comfortable. I can't do that. I can't do that. I might lose my job. I can't do that. I might, I, some of my family might not talk to me. I can't do that because someone might get upset with me. I can't do that because it might cost me something. I'm afraid that if we were to bend the, some of those first century, second century Christians, and maybe that Christianity never would have taken hold in the world like it has because we're so caught up in what we have to have. And listen, I know we sacrifice. I know we give to missions. And I know you pay your tithe. And, and I know all these things. I'm not, I'm not trying to put a burden upon you that you can't bear. But we have to be willing to take a stand and leave the cost in God's hands. We used to talk about giving until it hurts. But I don't even hear that anymore. 
We give out of our excess and our increase. We don't want to talk about sacrifice anymore. And we don't want to talk about a cost. What we want is we want an easy religion with an easy God. A friend of mine, he, when he became a Christian, his wife said, this is your choices. Either you turn away from your Christianity or you lose me. I have two friends like that. And both of them made the decision that they're going to serve God. And they lost their wife because she didn't want to go this old-fashioned way. And I think, where's our courage? And what does it cost me to serve God? What does it cost me? going to cost us something. It's going to cost us something. But not only is there a personal cost that when we take a stand, but there's oftentimes, oftentimes, there's a public cruelty, a public railing. Jonathan shows up they have their lie. I don't know why they're allowed to lie. Sometimes in the Old Testament they lie and I don't get it. God doesn't seem to count it against them. I mean, it's David's idea and you never hear where God was upset about it. But they have this lie. David's in hiding. He's not in Bethlehem. Jonathan shows up for the feast and it gets to about day three. And I mean, I believe with all my heart that, that it was Saul's plan to take David at this point. And part of the reason that I believe that is because it tells us specifically that Abner was at the meal. And the fact that God put that little detail in there tells me that there was something planned by King Saul. It's day three. He's impatient. And he says, Jonathan, where's David? I know your friends. Where's he at? Oh, David, he went to Bethlehem. They had a yearly sacrifice. And King Saul, mind you how much they love each other. Mind you that how carefully Jonathan has been to protect his father. King Saul goes off. I won't translate to you in common English what John what Saul said about Jonathan. Because if I had to say it, you all would, you'd throw me out. And John, Saul uses three things to get Jonathan to change his stand. First thing he uses is shame. He says, he says, you are the son of a rebellious woman. You've looked upon your mother's nakedness. You are a filthy, filthy son, and you're a disgrace to your mother, and you're a disgrace to me. And I'm cleaning this up a whole lot. That's a hard thing to take from someone you love a lot. Someone who's been your hero. 
When you were a little boy, your dad's winning victories and slaying the enemies of God, the one that you've grown up idolizing, the person that when you were not too many years ago was saying, I want to grow up and be just like him. He says, you're a shame to your mother and you're a shame to me. And then he uses guilt. He says, because you've done this, you're allowing me all the things that I work for, all the things that I've tried, done for you, all the work that I have put in to building a kingdom for you, you're costing me everything that I've worked for. Everything that I've done for you, all the labors, all the sacrifices, all that I've tried to do to set you up for your kingdom, you are wasting it away. How could you do this to me? And then he uses greed. He says, look at all you're giving up for that son of Jesse. He won't even say David's name. Son of Jesse. You're giving up the kingdom for a friendship? You're giving up a throne? You're giving up uh, servants and, uh, uh, and power and glory and wealth? You're giving all this up for him? And he appeals to his greed. And Jonathan says here, I stand. The person I love, perhaps most, I don't know if you would have pinned Jonathan down on that day, who do you love more, David or your father? I don't know which one he would have said. I don't think he, I don't think he would have accepted the challenge of telling you who he loved more. And this public criticism and cruelty. And Saul takes a javelin and he throws it at his own son this time. Thank God that Saul was a terrible aim. I don't know what his deal was. That guy could never, he couldn't hit David, he couldn't hit Jonathan. This guy's got terrible aim. I do believe that was from God. I believe he was well-trained in the use of javelins. I believe he'd killed many on a battlefield. I believe there's a reason why he always had a javelin handy. Is unless someone would try to attempt to, to assassinate him, he was well-versed in its use and he was confident he could kill an enemy with it. I believe it was the hand of God that saved David those many times in Jonathan. But here's, here's something that we may miss. If we're if just glossing over this scripture quickly, we may miss this. This was done in front of Abner, the chief general. Do you know who the greatest threat to a prince when he becomes king is in the kingdom? It's the top-ranking military general. Throughout history, when a 
king has died and a son has attempted to take the father's throne, it is the top general that has assassinated and used the military as a coup in order to take the kingship away from the rightful heir. Only the Lord knows how many times in history that has happened. The greatest threat, more than his siblings, more than his brothers, more than anyone else, is the military leader. And here, Saul is undermining Jonathan's authority in front of the one who has the most power to destroy Jonathan if he ever tries to take the throne. Wow. But do you think Saul's thinking about all this? No. Do you think Saul even meant the words that he said in, in so horrible and terrible language that he used towards his, his son? Do you really feel like th that he really felt that way? No. But do you think there are wounds of the words? You know, those, that javelin missed, but those words didn't. Those words didn't miss. Jonathan fled from the presence of his own father, whom he loved, I believe, on par with David. And we're going to have to face some criticisms and some cruelties when we take our stand. We're going to face some opposition. People aren't going to like it. People want, we are in a day where if you don't agree with me, you're oppressing me. I'm offended because you said something I don't agree with. We have to have a safe place in coloring books because someone I don't agree with became president. I might need that in 2020, so I don't want to mock it too much. When I see who's running, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm already stocking up on coloring books. <laughs> We're so easily offended. We're so easily a, uh, an insult to others when we take our stand and say, this is where we are. In fact, there are the universities across our great land have places of free speech zones, and then there's safe zones where you don't have to hear things you don't like. I mean, how wonderful is that to be able to go to college and you can, so long as you stay in the safety zones, you don't have to hear anything you don't like. I don't know how that works when they graduate and go to an actual job. My bosses have said a lot of things I don't like. I mean, can you imagine? The boss says, you're fired. I, I'm in the safe zone. You can't say things I don't like. And we can mock a younger generation and we can mock the safe zones and the coloring and the so forth, but how often have we kept silent and not taken our stand for Christ because we're afraid of someone's going to say? We're afraid of the public criticism and mockings of someone else. We're afraid of the wounds that they will inflict on our hearts. You know the story, I'm sure. Jonathan shoots the arrows and sends the boy off, and David and, and Jonathan have, they have the one 
really last good conversation. They would meet again one other time, but it, it wouldn't be the same. Sometimes when you take up a stand, when you take a stand, you take up a perpetual cross. They hug, they weep, they make promises to each other. And they know there will never be another moment of joy between them. They know as they're leaving that, that last time that Jonathan will be on Saul's side. Maybe not in his heart, but he, his duty, his responsibility is to be a part of Saul's army, and he's going to be there. And Jonathan promises, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to harm you. And David promises, I'm not going to harm you. And Jonathan makes David promise. He says, don't you harm my children. Don't harm any of my generations, none of my descendants. And David promises, and, and Jonathan makes a bold statement. He says, if you break this vow, may God require it of your enemies. This is a major thing, John, uh, David. You've got to promise me that you're not going to hurt my children and my grandchildren. That your house and my house will have peace. And now they've taken upon themselves a permanent cross. There will be no more hunting trips. There will be no more fishing trips. There will be no more feasts together. There will be no visiting the, each other's families. All the joy of their friendship has been wrung out. There will be no more moments of joy between David and Jonathan. They will never get another opportunity for any kind of celebration. No other opportunities really to demonstrate their love for each other. This is it. And yet Jonathan says that doing right is worth doing and so I'm going to do it no matter the fact that I'm picking up a cross that I know I'll never lay down for the rest of my life. Oh, maybe they hoped. Maybe they hoped that something would happen that finally King Saul would die of old age or something and Jonathan would, would then hand the kingdom over to David. I don't know what their plans were. I don't know what they thought would happen. But they knew that they were going in for the long haul. So oftentimes we, when we go into the trials, we want to get them over with as quickly as possible. And I don't blame you. I don't like long trials either. We don't like long illnesses. We don't like long uh, battles. We, we want God to get us through this trial and, and, and Lord help us to learn it so we can, we can get through this quickly and not have to do it again. <laughs> but Jonathan's stand meant that he was saying, I am committing for as long as it takes until the end of my life, if need be, to take up this cross because it's right. Because it's right. And I, I think we've gotten to the place where we want golden crosses and silver crosses and light crosses that are, we can dangle around our necks. Metaphorically speaking, we don't want heavy wooden crosses 
that cause our back to ache and our voice to groan. Not I. Not me, O oh Lord. And so when it's time to take our stand, we stay seated. Oh, that Jonathan would help us. His, that he would, his example would demonstrate to us the importance of taking a stand, no matter the personal cost, no matter what the public criticism that comes, no matter, no matter the, the, how long the cross is, but that we would take the stand just because it's right. In this life, Jonathan got no reward for what he did. You say, wait, 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 wait. What about Mephibosheth? <laughs> what about him? Jonathan never saw that. Jonathan didn't know for sure that David would keep his word. All that Jonathan could do was do what was right and leave the results in God's hands. Seventeen ninety nine, Conrad Reed was fishing, and he found a seventeen pound rock. He liked Kelsey's into rocks right now. I don't know where she is. Where's you at? There she is. Kelsey likes her rocks. If she hasn't shown you her rocks, she got some. She wants to show you. Yeah, there they rattle. Conrad liked this rock. Thought it was kind of neat. So he took it home, and for three years they used this seventeen pound rock. As a doorstop. Finally, 1801, his dad said, you know what, I want to find out what this thing is. And so he took it to a, to a jeweler, and the jeweler looked at it. For three years, they had used the, one of the largest gold nuggets found east of the Rockies as a doorstop. $3,600 worth. That's an expensive doorstop. But it wasn't until Conrad's father had it tested that they knew what that was, what the substance of that rock was. And it isn't until we face the trials of life, until we face the battles that, that, and, and the opportunities, whether we take our stand or not, it isn't until we get to that place that we find out whether our faith, what it is made of, is it soft and mushy, or is our faith like hard and like a diamond? Are we going to stand firm, or are we going to wallow? It wasn't until the rock was tested. And I believe some of us are being tested, and I, and I believe some of you have been tested, and I believe that all of us will be tested. But oh, that we will have a faith that will help us to take a stand, regardless of the cost and regardless of the criticism and regardless of the cross, that we would stand firm because it's right. Because it's right. May we all stand because it's right. Let's stand together. Rocky, dismiss us in prayer, would you?